Okay, I just want to read something. This is from Chris Fallerton. He, re- he wrote a blog. How many of you know who Chris Fallerton is? Can I just see? So if you don't know who Chris Fallerton is, I recommend that you go and follow him on Facebook and um, you know, follow his ministry, subscribe to his emails, subscribe to his blog. Uh, Chris Vallotton is the prophetic pastor at Bethel, and um, he's a prophet, no doubt, all right? And so he, he wrote this, which really excited me. Obviously, you know, in America, they're you know, fighting the, um, the abortion legislation, which allows abortion up until full term in New York. Um, and it's, it's nuts, it's demonic, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And Chris just, he wrote this article on a fatherless culture. And if you know, two weeks ago, prophetically, God just spoke about the role of mothers in society. And the role of a mother in bringing comfort and counsel, and it's the same week that he preached on the role of a father. And he wrote his blog off of that sermon. And down in the bottom here, he goes, I'm just scrolling to, to that place. Um, where is it? There we go. He says, a prophetic word for a new season. I'm going to say new season. All right. God already has dreams and solutions for our societal problems. How many of you know that you can't fix abortion through more rules and regulations? You fix it through a change in culture and a change in society. And part of that fix is the role of fathers and the role of mothers in society. He explains that most women who turn to abortion, these are his words, that turn to abortion first turn to the boyfriend for help. And they say, will you father this child? And the boyfriend says, I don't want responsibility. Or the husband says, I don't want responsibility of another child. Whatever the case is. And then abortion becomes. So there is a break in terms of the role. And and this is a deep identity issue that society has. They have. There's a deep societal issue in terms of taking up responsibility because of, our, because of identity, just because of who God is and who he's made us. And he says here, God already has dreams and solutions for our societal problems. And he quotes Psalm 68 verse 5. And at that point, I got very excited. <laughs> because From last year, God has been saying Psalm 68 is the pivotal chapter in the Bible for a new season and for a cultural change. In fact, last year, I don't think there was a single sermon that I didn't quote Psalm 68. Because it's become one of those foundational scriptures that as you read through it and you ponder on it, it opens up. New revelation upon new revelation. And the goal of Psalm 68, I believe it was written back then by David for today. 
No, you guys, there's only Harry is excited. Are you hearing what I'm saying? David wrote a psalm that is for today. No, you still aren't feeling it. <laughs> when you open up the psalm, it, was, it says it was written for the chief musician, but it was written for you. Today. Right now, this year. This very season. It's not applicable to a thousand years ago. It was written for now. And never again will this season or this time exist. You are very, very special. Look at the person next to you and say, I'm the most special person on earth. Sorry, Stefan, you've got to shout it across the room there. Okay. <laughs> I'm the most special person. Because David wrote a psalm for me. Just say it with me. He wrote a psalm for me. So Psalm 68 verse 5 says, A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. When God took me to that very verse almost exactly a year ago, I remember so specifically how I was sitting outside in our yard. I had reckless love on in my ears. And as I read that verse, I just started crying and crying and crying. It like... It broke my spirit. <laughs> I can't emphasize how deeply it impacted me. Not just because of my personal situation, or, but because I could feel that God was saying something about this season. And he's saying something. I mean, my name means God is my judge. And so this verse says, A father of the fatherless and the judge for the widows is God. And in that moment, God said, you're not a widow, so the judge part <laughs> applies to you, but today I'm changing your name. Your name is no longer God is my judge. It's God is my father. And as he said, God is my father, I realized we're leading a brand new Revelation. And God has appointed this church, believe it or not. <laughs> and in this time, to lead God's people into a full understanding of the fact that God is your Father. It's, it's, it's extremely powerful what God is doing. And then he is also a husband to the widow. And last two, three weeks ago, this is Chris Vallotton writing, saying he's a husband to the widow. Two, three weeks ago, we spoke about how Isaiah um, 54, if I'm correct, it talks about the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And then the very next verse, Isaiah 54, starts off. It says, no more will the widow be alone. No longer will she barren. But she will have more spiritual children than the woman who is married. And 
If you read those two, you know, you can read Isaiah 53. It's the story of Jesus on the cross, and then it goes straight into the widow. If you correlate John, uh, I'm sorry, Luke, and I'm just, let me, I've seen my notes here, but if you correlate the story of Jesus on the cross, as he died, he looked at his mother, who was a widow at the time, and he said, John, behold your mother. In other words, be amazed. Not be, oh, sorry for her. It was, behold your mother, because there is the great comfort, and there is the great joy. So the role of fathers and mothers is being established more than ever before. Okay? And, and I'm just excited that a prophet on the other side of the earth is picking up on the same exact scripture and saying it is time for a new season. And last week I said Psalm 68 is so 2018, but guess what? (laughs) It's so 2019. (laughs) It's back. And as if to... Give me further confirmation this, when, when waiting on God for this morning, and I really tried to avoid Psalm 68. God said, go to Psalm 68, verse 7. I opened it up in my Bible, and it's the only verse in Psalm 68 I haven't underlined or explained yet. It says, O oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness. Think about that. Think about God marching in front of his people through the wilderness. All right, so at this point, we should, according to scripture, get a string player out and a harp. And let the music just play for about 24 hours while you think about that. You see, when it says sila, it means think about that. Just, God, when you marched in front through the wilderness, think about that. And so David thought about it for 24 hours, and, and then he wrote the next verse. He says, The heavens poured down rain at the presence of the Lord. Wow. Wow. And, and as I thought about that, I realized God is pouring out a new kind of wisdom. God is pouring out a new kind of wisdom. Just put out your hands. And just ask the rain of God's wisdom to fall on your hands. Where it's dry, where you feel unwise, where you feel like you can't make right decisions, where there is dry ground, where you think you don't have control of certain situations, the rain starts to fall. At first it just drops. You smell dust. Then it goes away and then the drops come back again. But soon it starts to pitter patter, pitter patter, and then there's an outpouring of God's wisdom. 
And I was reading about Stephen in Acts. And this is where God's taking us to. It says, now Stephen, verse 8, Acts 6, verse 8, full of grace and power worked great wonders and signs and miracles amongst the people. However, there were some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen who arose to debate and dispute with Stephen. It says, but they were not able to resist the intelligence and the wisdom, the wisdom and the inspiration of the Spirit with which and by whom he spoke. They weren't able to resist his intelligence and his wisdom. And last week we spoke about the fact that there's a difference between understanding and there's a difference between knowledge. Knowledge is, if you operate solely with knowledge, you operate purely on what you have learned by experience. But the spirit of wisdom adds understanding to knowledge. So that when faced with having to make a decision, you draw from the spirit. So you don't make decisions based purely on the past. But you're able to tap into the supernatural and the word it says is wisdom is prudent. You will be called prudent. Prudent means you think about the future. And you draw into the spirit so that your future is established through your decisions made by the Holy Spirit, which is wisdom. It's a full revelation of who Jesus is and how that applies to your life. It's a full understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. And so your decisions for the future never get made on what you've learned. But you can take what you've learned and you can ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And so you make decisions based on understanding, spiritual understanding. Caroline Leaf writes in her book about, you know, um, I forget the title of her book, but, but she says it takes a long time for your mind to understand what your spirit already knows. So God's spirit gives us an understanding that sometimes can't even be formulated into words. That's why it's so important to pray in tongues, for instance. Because you have an understanding, but your mind can't understand the things of God. And so your mind takes a long time to figure out what your spirit already knows. Okay, how many of you know God only speaks English? <laughs> right. God doesn't speak a human language. Think about that. So your spirit understands God in his fullness, but your mind has to somehow decode that and translate that down to physical, biological positioning. Okay? How many of you know that we were given eyes to see light, but out of God radiates light? And so... Our earth was created by a spoken word from God. But that one word has the entire universe's 
If you think about every mathematical algorithm, if you think about every element, if you think about every weather condition, if you think about everything in the whole earth, from the smallest atom through to the ugliest insect through to the biggest whale, all of that was contained in one word. And God has more than just one word. So he's so much greater than everything we will ever learn through knowledge. And our spirit understands that, but there aren't words to describe that. And so Stephen is performing signs and wonders and miracles because he's operating out of that spiritual understanding. How many of you know when you operate out of the spiritual, then the physical doesn't say no? You with me? The physical does not say no. It always says yes. It submits to the spirit. And so it says here, but they were not able to resist. And then they weren't able to resist, so they falsely accused him. And they got, you know, whole groups of people to to falsely accuse him because they wanted to get rid of him. Um, and this is this is so important. What Harry mentioned, you know, about to say it again, the 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 heavenlies. The, what did you say about the the upper room um, in your prophetic word up here in the front? Come up, as Stephen. He gives a description, and I'm going to get into that description. But as he, as he's finished describing that, he says, "I see the heavenlies opened, and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father." And at that point, they lose their minds. The Bible says they put their hands on their ears and they shouted at Stephen drowning out what he was saying because they couldn't take more of the Holy Spirit. And then they stoned him to death. And, and Stephen, before he does that, he gives this picture of mankind that has through the years rejected Every single prophet. In fact, the Jewish systems rejected every single prophet because the prophets spoke of a savior, Jesus. And he points out, and um, let's go to Act 7. We spoke about the fact that God goes into the wilderness, and you've got to think about that, right? How many of you are still thinking about that? Okay. It's all right if you're not listening to me, but as long as you're thinking about that. And in it, in Act 7, they ask Stephen, is it true? Because uh, apparently he, he um, incited the people against the temple. And 
They brought him into council, and it says, And as they gazed intently at Stephen, they saw that his face had the appearance of a face like an angel. So, you bring a guy in, you put him on the court stand, and then he glows. And then they're like, no, no, we're going to prove this guy wrong. How many of you know today, if that happened on TV, to be on Twitter and Instagram, like, this guy's for real. All right? His face glowed like an angel. And the high priest said, are these charges true? And then he starts to give them a picture. And... He says here in verse 38 as part of it, he says, This is he who in the assembly in the wilderness was the go-between for the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and our forefathers, and he received living oracles to be handed down. And yet our forefathers determined not to be subject to him, but thrusting him aside, they rejected him, and in their hearts they yearned for, and they turned back to Egypt." So if we take what I spoke about last week, yeah, God, yeah, Moses is given by God living oracles. In other words, the words that you've always wanted to hear that will give you life forever. And the moment he comes down with those words, they reject him. And where do they long to go back to? To Egypt. So the Israelites literally long to go back into slavery Instead of receive the words from God himself. And then they said to Aaron, no, you make us an idol so that we can worship something we can see. And so they're on this mountain. And and I'm taking you on a bit of a journey here. So just go with me as well to Hebrews 12. And it says in verse 18, For you have not come to a material mountain that can be touched, that is ablaze with fire and to gloom and darkness that is a raging storm. Remember um, verse, remember the Psalm 68 says, You went before us in the, in the, in the wilderness and you sent plenty rain you, you poured out rain, and yonder, yonder, in the distance, Sinai, the mountain quake. That's Psalm 68. So it's talking about Mount Sinai. I'm hoping you can catch these connections here. And now it says in Hebrews, it says, you haven't come to Sinai that's quaking in the wilderness there. That's raging with fire. And then it goes on to say, and at the blast of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the listeners beg that nothing more be said to them, for they could not bear the command that was given. So he has this mountain and the trumpet blares. Are you with me in Hebrews? And, and it says the people could not bear it. And, and it says the whole camp literally ran away from the mountain. And Moses had to say, whoa, don't be afraid. Don't, even though Moses himself was afraid. He, he was like, don't be afraid. Come. Come, come to the mountain. And, and, you know, and Stephen then says to these people, they rejected Moses when he came down off the mountain. That's in Acts 7. And the funny thing is, is that, and you've heard me speak this before, but the funny thing is, 
the people in the room with Stephen rejected his word in the same way that the Israelites were afraid of the mountain. They closed their ears and they rejected it. They were afraid. Because Stephen's words were like the voice of a trumpet. Loud and clear. It says they were cut to the heart. As Stephen pointed out how through the ages they have rejected Jesus by rejecting all of the prophets. They have sought to put every single one of the prophets to death. Because when confronted with wisdom, (laughs) when you're trying to sustain your life through knowledge, it makes you afraid. Very afraid. And then it goes on in Hebrews here. And it says, For you haven't come to the mountain. For they couldn't bear it. In fact, so awful and terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm terrified. But rather, now listen, this is the most important part. Remember, we're going into a new season. Remember, God is establishing something new in his church. (laughs) Something that has never been heard before. Something that has never been experienced before. It's currently 25 years since revival broke out in Toronto. How many of you know of the Toronto outpouring? They're actually having a conference this week to celebrate 25 years since the outpouring. 25 years. I mean, I remember when it broke out, and I'm not that old. But I remember church was just church, and it was going on, and then on a day, Youth groups started having meetings where they were laughing so loud that there was no meeting. People were falling over in church. People were getting healed. Prophetic words started to... And God did something in the church, which you can see the fruit of even today. But he took church out of their traditional knowledge-based services and he shocked them. (laughs) with an experience of the Holy Spirit. The point was so that eyes could go off of what I know already in the past so that I can experience more of Jesus. But as history repeats itself, 10, 15 years down the line, even falling over becomes common knowledge, becomes just part of the norm. And so even that which was Incredibly powerful and an incredible um, display of God's goodness. Even that becomes a form of religion and repetition. And God is now stirring up a brand new revival in the church. And his question to us is, are you ready to take part in it? You see, Revelation says, behold, I make all things new. How many of you have can experience that he makes all things new. That means, you know, he makes, some of you don't, you know, you're not looking very excited about the fact that God makes all things new. In other words, the systems and the things you've been stuck in for the last 10 years, they don't have to go on. You can change. 
You can step into a revolution. You can step into revival. You can see your lives completely transformed when you understand that God makes all things new. And so he says here, you, but rather you have come to Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? It's so important what Harry says. He says, said, said this morning, you don't, have to, you don't have to give and then expect that you'll be blessed one day in heaven. Now the word says you'll be blessed on earth. Right? Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the ability to live with the full power of the Holy Spirit. Kingdom living. Mount Zion is the full impact of God's presence on your life. Even though the world around you looks like a wilderness. You with me? The Israelites were in the wilderness, but they had the opportunity to experience the full presence of God, yet they chose to run back into the wilderness. And Bernadine and I, we talk about it often, but you know, I've always said you don't have to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Everyone has to go through a wilderness, but you don't have to die there. Think about what it means that God takes you through the wilderness. His rain starts to fall. And he shakes the mountain. But you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. Jeremiah 31 says, There will be a day when the watchmen cry, Let's go praise God at Mount Zion. Instead of looking out for where the next wilderness experience is coming from. They're saying, let's go praise. Let's go praise. Let's go praise. Chris Vallotton writes, he says, the second part of this new season is that churches are going to erupt in praise. That music from churches is going to change even the secular world. That the music that is written in churches, <laughs> the secular world's going to go, how on earth do they find the time and the creativity to make music that impacts us? Yesterday I go to the, the garage, Bernadine's music's playing in the car, it's her car, she was listening to herself, but I was driving her car. <laughs> the CD's playing, and the petrol guy's putting in, and he's like, man, what music is that? I'm like, he's like, is it gospel? So I said, it's my wife. <laughs> What? No, never. He said, it sounds just like your song. And I can feel the presence. <laughs> so that, that's an example of the difference between God-inspired music and secular music. When you put it on, you can feel... Something's changing. Chris says there's an anthem that is going to go out from the churches. It's an anthem that goes out. That when people find themselves in the wilderness, they start singing an anthem. And they turn around and they point back at Mount Zion, which is God's place of worship. And they step towards the mountain and they come to worship him. Let us go praise. 
Amen? First, so, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to a mountain. And at that mountain, you praise. Secondly, it says here, and you've come to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Secondly, you've come to the church. So, as I read that and as I thought about it, because now I'm still thinking about God in the wilderness, I realized that the church is like Mount Sinai. And on the church there are rumbles. And there's thunder and there's lightning. And you know, it's so funny. I know so many people who will go to a church where the church doesn't challenge them, doesn't confront them, where it's just tradition, where it just feels good to go to church. And the moment they go to a church where, you know, the power of God might even be real, they're afraid. (laughs) The church shouldn't be a place that you come to and be afraid of. You've got to dive into the rumblings of God. So you, you, you make a physical commitment. Amen. Jose. <laughs> you make a physical. There's a spiritual response to God which results in a physical action. The first action is to praise God at Mount Zion. The second physical response to hearing and feeling God and, and being devoted is to come to church, to get involved at church. Amen. Say yes. Shout it out loud. Okay. <laughs> and you know what? When you come to church, we come to church fully expecting to meet God in the same way that Moses met God on the mountain. We don't have a single Moses moment. We have a weekly experience. Of God. So I asked the petrol guy, so do you go to church? He says, Ah, oh, you know the church is God inside of me. Nobody, you go to church. Because you can't experience the fullness of God unless you gather with the saints. Period. It's a lie. You're deceiving yourself if you think you can just experience God on your own. God designed and incorporated the institution of church so that he can bless it, so that people can be drawn in and experience his goodness. And let me tell you what, every time I walk through that door at the back, I expect to have a Moses encounter of God. I expect that I'm walking on holy ground. I expect that he's going to reveal not even just a little bit of his goodness, but all of his goodness. I expect that people are going to jump up and they're going to be full and, and, and express God's, God's, God's spirit and pour out more of his favor in the house. I expect that miracles and signs will happen. That's what we believe. But you can't have that at home on your own. <laughs> you can't. You've got to gather I like streaming and I like what it means, but it's not as powerful as gathering. Streaming and downloading sermons, that should be an addition. That should fill you up. That should be an extra. But it can't become the main thing. 
Because you have to put some skin into it. And you have to physically go. And you have to be involved. And then it says, and you come to the God who is the judge of all. (laughs) And this prophetic word in Psalm 68 says, God is a father to the fatherless and a judge to the widow. In other words, he defends. And it says, when you come to God who judges, you come to a God who understands your hurts and your pains. And he understands where others have let you down. And he defends you on your behalf. And he lifts you up into a place where you can say, Abba, Father. Where you can say, God is my Father. Then it says here, and you come, you come, To those who have been made perfect. To the spirit of those who have been made perfect. At that point, you guys are like, hmm? (laughs) Go to Ephesians 4. I'm just laying down some foundational stuff here. But Ephesians 4 verse 12 says, His intention was the perfecting, And the full equipping of the saints that they should do the work of ministering towards building up Christ's body. That we might all develop until we all attain. Say all attain. Okay, not just one or two of us. All of us attain oneness in the faith and in the comprehension In other words, the understanding of the full accurate knowledge of this. Come on, what I spoke about last week. So it's saying we come in faith until we have a full spiritual understanding of who Jesus is. So that we might arrive at a really mature manhood speaking about becoming fathers, right? So that we can attain nothing less, say nothing less. Then the standard height of Christ's own perfection. Hello? (laughs) And where is that perfection supposed to be manifested? In heaven? After death? Or now in the church? Now in church. Ooh. Come on. So we don't go to Mount Sinai in the desert. We go to Mount Zion, which is we go to a place of praise. We go to church. At church we meet God who understands our shortcomings but lifts us up to become fathers so that we can be with those who are perfect in spirit. And unfortunately, so many of the church, or so many people in church have been deceived, been told that it's okay just to be human. It's okay to not have control of your lives. God's grace covers it. And 
But I realized that everyone is called to be a child of God. But everyone is also called to become a father. And so that faith that he gives us is the faith to become perfect in Christ. So that we manifest his perfection. Stephen was a picture. Stephen was one of those pictures of the perfection of Jesus Christ. He was so perfect, his face glowed in the same way that Moses' face glowed. They couldn't argue him, they couldn't resist his intelligence nor his wisdom. And James says, He who can control his tongue is perfect. So what we're speaking comes from our spiritual understanding. But it also comes out of our commitment to finding God. And so if the world looks like a wilderness, either we're going to run away from the full power of God because we're afraid of it, or we're going to pull into it and draw into it. And step into it. And take more, more steps to take hold of more of the kingdom of God. Until all of us attain that perfection. And it is possible. You know the scripture says no one can say they haven't sinned. That is true. But it's possible to never sin again. Ooh, hello. <laughs> it's possible. To never sin again. And you have to have the faith. Trust me, this is even personal. We have to have the faith that you can step into that perfection which Jesus is calling us into. Because any form of sin wants to make you afraid of the presence of God. And that's the ultimate goal of sin. Is to make you afraid to disconnect you from God's glory. To disconnect you from praise. So that what comes out of your mouth is mumble jumble. What comes out of your mouth is fear. What comes out of your mouth discourages instead of encourages. Makes you disconnect from fellow Christians. Makes you want to run away from the gathering. Makes you want to run away from family and friends. Makes you want to run away from God the Father. Makes you believe that everyone is out to get you. We can't be afraid of the Holy Spirit and His full power anymore. And this is the new season that God is taking the church into. It is a revelation of the full power of God in our lives and what it means. It is a new outpouring. It is a fresh outpouring. I can't emphasize it enough, but this is where God's taking us. Psalms 25, verse 8, last scripture. Have you guys connected the dots? Okay, Psalms 25. 
What rhymes with mumble? Humble. But jumble also rhymes with. There we go. Good one. <laughs> Psalms 25, verse 8 to 10. It says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he will instruct sinners in his way. He leads the humble. In what is right, and the humble he teaches his way. And when I thought about the word humble, I realized humility is a strength. Humility is extremely powerful. You know, if you're running away from something, it's because you don't have humility. Someone who is humble is not afraid. If I'm humble towards God, I say, God, you have full control. You're the co-pilot, not the captain. Does it make sense? <laughs> Harry's like, yes. You know, when you get in a plane and you take off, oftentimes the captain will take off and then he will hand over to the co-pilot. Or just before he lands, he'll hand off to the co-pilot to give him experience. And then he says, you have control. And the co-pilot responds and says, I have control. The humble hands over and says, you have control. Now, you can be very afraid at that moment. Harry trains pilots, he knows. At that point, that guy can go, mm. <laughs> Yeah, there's this Gary Larson cartoon. It's one of my favorites where the captain comes on and says, Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be experiencing turbulence for the next five minutes. Please buckle up. Make sure you're, you're safely, everything's stowed in order. And, um, you know, the vomit bags are in the front. <laughs> Click. And then he says, Are you ready? And then he goes, shh, shh, shh. I hope you survived that turbulence and enjoy, enjoy the rest of the flight. Should be landing in about half an hour if, if Captain Johannes knows where he's going. <laughs> and then you're on a flight to Cape Town and you land and the captain says, ding, ding, welcome to Harare. How <laughs> <laughs> I many you know when you get in the back of a plane, it is the most humbling experience you have? No one gets on the plane and says, I just want to check, does the captain know where we're going? Are we going to fly at the right altitude? Will he actually speak to ATC? No, you get on and you sit down and you enjoy the rest of the flight. Right? <laughs> Chicken or beef? See, God leads us in that way. You get in, you buckle up, you say, yes, I want to go. If you complain and say, I don't want to go, you know what happens? You get thrown out. Hopefully not at 35,000 feet. 
Now my Bible page is on its own, yeah. God is good. And that's, that's the key fundamental foundation of our faith. God is good. You get in, you say, yes, that captain is the best. God is good and he, he, he will instruct sinners in his way. Doesn't that just also talk about how we approach sinners? How we approach people who we know have hurt us and harmed us? Show them some of God's goodness. Because we understand that God will lead them. If they submit, if they're able to be humble, if they say, man, God, will you show me your ways? God will show them. God will guide them. He's not going to give them unnecessary turbulence. He leads the humble in what is right. And the humble he teaches his way. So the humble are not afraid. The humble can obey. The humble can have faith. The humble know when to speak and when not to speak. The humble are wise. They seek God. The humble are constantly looking for God's goodness. You know, there's part of the scripture says, you know, by your covenant and your testimony. That speaks to me about two things. It's actually in verse 10. It says, all the parts of the Lord are mercy and steadfast love. Man, all of God's paths are mercy and steadfast loves. That means it's like, it's like being promised the lotto every time you play. Okay, how many of you, you know, I'm not going to ask who's played the lotto in church. <laughs> but imagine you could go there and like, yes, sir, you are going to win one million. And next week, yes, sir, you are going. That's how God's love is. That's how all of his paths are. That's why being humble isn't even difficult. Because when you say yes to God, you step into humble and steadfast. Ach, you step into, what am I saying here? Mercy and steadfast. Love. You step into truth. You step into faithfulness. There's no need to run away from the mountain. Do you see the, the perversion in the Israelites? That when God presented them with his goodness, with his mercy, with his love and his truth, they were running away. There's no need to. For those, for they are those who keep his covenant and his testament. Covenant is what's in store in the future. Testament is what's behind you. It parallels nicely with understanding and with knowledge. You see, we know what Jesus did for us. It's in the past. He already died. But now we look forward into what that gives us. It's an understanding. It's his covenant. His covenant was laid down forever, which says, man, Jesus died for all of your sins. Jesus died for all of your shortcomings. Jesus died for all of your illnesses. You don't have to be afraid that one day you're going to get sick because Jesus already died. You have that in your knowledge. 
It's something you understand. The most amazing thing is David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. You know, they wrote about Jesus in the past tense, even before he appeared. So they wrote about Jesus from spiritual understanding. <laughs> and they wrote about it in past tense. That psalm that says, for our wounds he was. <laughs> I, I mean, do you understand that God is omnipotent, beginning and end. He is in the beginning and he is in the end. But his covenant and his testimony have always been and will always be. So you're consistently living, seeking foresight. That's what prudent means. Those who are prudent are those that make decisions with foresight. But they're so aware of their testimony. And so out of our mouths, we're given the opportunity to share our covenant, our covenant of commitment, our covenant that says, man, I have faith in a Jesus Christ who is continuing to make our world a safer place, who is continuing to change our culture and our society, who has given life for everyone, who one day we will see with physical eyes and we will experience him in even greater glory, but who has said that I can reap rewards even now, who has said, my rewards aren't stored up for a thousand years or after the millennium or after whatever, blah, blah, blah. Now, I receive them. And so it's so important that he taught us to pray and he taught us to say, on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, when we say your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven one day and not on earth, <laughs> we, we replace our knowledge or our understanding with our knowledge. We, we think that it's just going to continue to get worse and worse. And then one day there's going to be an explosion and a trumpet. But actually that trumpet is already sounding. That trumpet is our sound of praise. That trumpet is our voice that's speaking passionately and loudly and declaring his comfort, his covenant, and his testimony.